ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. In uh, 2020, people will look at it and say, oh, it's been 50 years since that collision has occurred. But uh, the, the, the one thing about that collision, it's something I wouldn't, I mean, I, I was waiting for the baseball. I was always told to set myself up where the baseball was thrown and going to be arriving. That's what I did when Amos Otis threw it, and, and the rest is history. But it's, it's a play that people have talked about. Players who I broadcast for the Oakland A's now have no clue who I am, who I was, what I did until they see that play and they go, oh, that was you? Oh, okay. And then, you know, the conversation continues, whatever. But, uh, but I think over the course of years, the attention – given to that play has not from my standpoint uh... hello tribe fans and welcome to another episode of our tribe history presented by progressive uh if you can guess from the intro clip there that is mr ray fossey former catcher for the cleveland indians now broadcaster for the oakland athletics while i love the 1920s indians and early baseball history it's also nice to talk to a player that fans will still remember and still connect with nothing against Tris Speaker or any of those guys but I know that there's still a lot of fans that remember watching Ray Fossey play versus uh you know Wambi or Jack Graney so I'm really excited for this podcast and I actually recorded this interview with Ray a couple weeks ago and it was a a heck of an interview, I think, and I, I can't use it all, but some of it I can use, I think, later on for additional podcasts. Ray um, participated in, in a lot of great events in Indians history. He was part of the 1993 closing of Municipal Stadium, as well as the 2001 100 Top Greatest Indians Players events as well. So we, we chatted about that. However, I might have to hold that back for episodes about those other events. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, 
you know, Bill Wambi later in life mentioned how everyone wanted to talk about that triple play and, you know, he had a long career. And with Ray, there's that similar instance of the collision with Pete Rose, but his career is much bigger than that. And especially his time as a, a gold glove winning all-star a top 100 great Indians player. And I want to examine that and, and we're going to, we'll talk about the, the Pete Rose collision, but there's so much more to Ray's story with Cleveland. So many times growing up when you get asked what you want to be, I know I grew up in the heart of the nineties with this great Indians team. I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to play at progressive field. Some kids are, are more vocal about letting their teachers know that I want to be a baseball player. And usually the response you might get as well. Don't forget to study because the odds are uh, usually against you of, of reaching the major leagues. But for Ray, he was committed you know, as a young young kid. He knew he wanted to be a ball player. He knew that's you know, where he wanted his life to take him, and you know, it, it did. One of the things that I remember in the third grade when the teacher asked all the students what they wanted to be when they grew up, and it was a time when I don't know of anybody else who said anything other than a fireman, a policeman, and that was it. Uh, they came to me, and I said, I want to be a professional baseball player. And, of course, there were a lot of laughs. And that was the third grade. So age eight, basically, I said I wanted to be a player, a baseball player. I, you know, I played Little League Baseball. I played uh, the Pony, the American Legion, all those things, um, and high school baseball, of course, and played other sports and football, basketball, as well as baseball. But, you know, my dream, uh, I was unaware of anything other than the St. Louis Cardinals were my favorite team. I, uh, Sam Usual was my boyhood idol. Anytime I had a chance uh, to go to St. Louis to watch the Cardinals play, I would go with, with friends whose family. My, unfortunately, I, I grew up in, a, in a, um, a, a home that just had a mother raising three boys. My father left when I was eight. So essentially, whenever I got a chance to go to St. Louis, I went. And, and my dream was I thought that when I was a senior in high school and after graduation, I was going to hitchhike to Florida try out with the Cardinals and sign with the Cardinals. That's how naive I was at age eight, not knowing really what baseball was all about. And uh, the reality set in when um, I had my high school baseball coach, uh, the late Leroy Anderson, telling me, you know, Ray, there are scouts in the stands watching you. And so I, I wasn't going to change any way I was playing. Uh, but I did know there were scouts watching. I did not know the particulars about what was going to be happening. And ultimately the draft came in 1965 that changed everything with regard to baseball and who you sign with. So, uh, I just played the way I normally played and enjoyed baseball. I enjoyed all the sports, enjoyed summer baseball, and ultimately was drafted in 1965 with the Indians and, uh, the rest is, you know, basically my career. When I went back in the plane dealer and found that, the 1965 count of the draft and how the Indians drafted Fossey. It's, it's fun because you look at the draft now and it's such a big event. And obviously this actually it's this week, this draft is going to be unique because of everything going on in the world. But 1965, the plane dealer wrote Ray Fossey, an 18 year old catcher from Marion, Illinois was the first round free agent draft choice of the Indians yesterday at the major league draft meetings at New York. Fossey, a strapping 6'2", 205-pounder, was thrilled when he received the news from his brother, who had heard about the tribe's selection on a local radio station. Uh, Fossey told the plane dealer by phone, It's great. I didn't expect it. I knew 
that Cleveland had a scout who was watching me in the regional tournament, but I had no idea that the Indians were that interested. Trying to contain his excitement proved to be difficult for the overjoyed Fosse. He was notified at work and confessed, I haven't been able to concentrate since Jim, his younger brother, called and told me. Now it's the Indians' job to sign Fosse. If they fail to do so within five and one-half months, the young athlete will go back into a special draft pool for next year. So again, Ray heard the news from his brother, who heard the news from a local radio station. So, uh, so different than anything we have today. But again, everything's constantly, uh, constantly changing. And I think for the best that the draft has has changed a bit. When the draft came in 1965, and I was drafted by the Cleveland Indians, it was my goal to sign with the Cleveland Indians. And uh, the, the one thing that I do remember, Walter Shannon, who came in as a scout to sign me with the Cleveland Indians, evidently he had not seen me play. Uh, it was a group of teams, uh, Pittsburgh, one of the teams, uh, and I know that because it seemed like it was the Pirates who sent in the scout report on me. And evidently the scouts of the teams would look at the reports and say, okay, we are looking for a catcher. We'll go on this report. And uh, I never saw Walter Shannon until he came to my house to talk about a contract and when I was drafted by the Cleveland Indians. So uh, to be very honest with you, I wanted to play baseball. I didn't care. And as a matter of fact, when the negotiations were going on, I'll I'll never forget when Walter Shannon left and I said I had an attorney there helping me. Uh, My mother was there, uh, my high school baseball coach and uh, a gentleman who was the athletic director. We were there. And when Walter Shannon left, I said, what happened? Because I I didn't know anything about negotiations or anything. And and I was told that, well, we didn't come to an agreement on, on the salary. I said, who cares about that? Call him. Let's, you know, there was no cell phones. I said, somehow find him and get him back here because I don't care about the money. I, obviously, I, <laughs> it, it turned out to be a total of 28000 signing bonus and a 7500 college uh, uh, money that I could use towards college. And, and, you know, so like I said, I wanted to sign. And uh as it turned out, I did sign with Cleveland. I was happy. I didn't know anything about the Cleveland Indians at the time. And I just was very ecstatic to be able to be drafted by the Cleveland Indians. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't care who I was going to be drafted by or who I played with. I just want to play professional baseball because that was my goal. As Ray mentioned, he was really excited to become a member of the tribe. And you see that in the reflected in the newspaper because the, the first Notice went out in June 9th's paper that the Indians had drafted Ray. And by June 13th, it was already reported that Fossey had signed with the Indians and was believed to have accepted a bonus in the 20000 range from Scout Walter Shannon yesterday. Now, by June 20th, he was already on his way to Cleveland as a guest of Gabe Paul, and it actually changed his signing bonus closer to what Ray had said in the interview to around 30000 and I remember getting on a plane uh, after I had signed in Marion, Illinois, and got on a small two-engine prop plane and flew into Cleveland to work out before they decided what they were going to do with me and to show up at Cleveland Municipal Stadium and work out, take batting practice, and then sit with, um, I think it was Bob Neiman, and watch the games. I mean, talk about an 18-year-old who had never been any place farther than St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri from Marion, which is about 120 miles uh, 
northwest from Marion, that was the extent of my travels. So for me to do that and go to Cleveland, I was wow. You know, here I'm 18 years old, and you know, it, it was a it was a big thrill for me in hindsight. But at the time, I was scared to death because I'd never left home for any period of time, and that was my first experience. Very much like today's draft picks. After your sign, you get to come to the stadium and you know take BP and, and kind of meet some of the guys. And for Ray, it wasn't much different in 1965. You know, he's an 18-year-old kid in cavernous Cleveland Municipal Stadium and running into the likes of Rocky Calavito, which, you know, for anyone, I imagine that could be a very terrifying situation. But it, it played out really well for Ray. I remember taking batting practice at the old Municipal Stadium and Max Alvis, uh, Leon, Daddy Wags, Wagner, Chuck Hinton, the, the pitching staff, you know, the the thing that I remember probably more than anything was when I signed and I walked in to Cleveland Municipal Stadium towards the home clubhouse, which, you know, after years, I ended up being there. But Rocky Calavito met me at the door and he said, hi, I'm Rocky Calavito. And it's just something, Jeremy, I'll never, ever forget, because when he met me at the door, he introduced himself and he said, I want to take you around and introduce you to the players. So Rocky Calavito, who I became friends with, you know, over the years, he was inning coach and, you know, just a tremendous, tremendous person to me personally. And he took me around and introduced me to every player. Now, obviously when it came to Joe Askew, who was a catcher for the Indies at the time, I can remember that Joe was not that interested in meeting me, which is, I, I you know, fully understood simply because, uh, I was there to take his job, and ultimately I did uh, become, you know, the catcher of the tribe. But uh, I'll never forget that Rocky did that. And even fast forwarding to spring training of 1966, after I'd spent the uh, the, uh, the summer in, in Reading, Pennsylvania, in Double A, Rocky in spring training, we were staying at a hotel motel uh, on the west side of Tucson, and he said to me, "Are you doing anything for dinner tonight?" And I went, "What?" you know, you're asking me, I said, no, of course not. And he said, okay, let's go to dinner. And Rocky took me to dinner and we had a nice dinner and we visited. And uh, he just kind of told me about baseball and, and the, the life of a baseball player. He had had experience himself and he was passing that along to me. And, and again, the, the, the thing that he did in introducing me to the players and taking me out to dinner, it was something that I remembered as my career expanded. So as new players came up, I tried to do the same thing for them to help them because it's, it's a lonely time when you join a ball club. And especially during that period of time, I think it's a little different now. Uh, but you know, at that period of time in the sixties, you had a lot of players who were drafted, a lot of players who, who became members of a particular team. And in, in my case, if Rocky had not done that, I would walk to that clubhouse and uh, Cy Bynack was the equipment manager, clubhouse manager. He would have given me a spot to, to dress and a uniform to put on. They go out in batting practice. But the fact that Rocky did that to kind of soften the blow of, of being in a major league clubhouse for the first time is something that I'll never forget. And I will always, always remember what he did to help me. And it's something that it helped me as I grew as a professional baseball player and fortunately in the big leagues to be able to do the same thing to players as they came in. After school ended in 1967, Ray joined Portland in AAA and was a part of a team that was making a, a playoff push, but little did he know that his 1967 season was going to end up with him in Cleveland. 
1967, um, I had stayed in school the full year. And I remember going to spring training on a two-week spring break. And I went to Southern Illinois University. And it was a period of time that the, the Vietnam War was going on. And, you know, school was important. I stayed in school, so I had an exemption for being a college student. So my season really didn't start till after college uh, had let out in June, I think it was. And I ended up going to Portland, Oregon. And to be in 1967 and be essentially 20 years old and, again, joining a ball club in Portland that was a veteran club, a lot of older players. I say older at the time because they were late 20s. And I, you know, being a 20-year-old myself, I'm thinking these guys are old, but uh, a very good, experienced team to the point that when I joined the team, the club was really not playing that well. And we had a fantastic second half, or at least for me, you know, the the remainder of the season for me, we ended up, I think, tying for the Western Division, the Pacific Coast League. And we had a, a playoff game against a team that I cannot remember. All I know, it was at Multnomah Stadium in Portland. We had a huge crowd on hand. Uh, we ended up losing the game, and I was called up to Cleveland and initially went to Minnesota and joined the club there. And then we went on to Cleveland, where I caught Sonny Siebert in my major league debut. And Ray gets that early September call-up. It was uh, September 8th where he makes his debut. So he's leaving uh, a playoff game in Portland and coming to Cleveland to a team that's finishing towards the bottom of the American League. And he got his first taste of what a lot of people remember of that old ballpark being uh, big and not necessarily filled. And I, I remember in the the cavernous stadium, municipal stadium, it was huge. And, and you know, and I had remembered it from 65 when I had gone to take batting practice. But now to go, I think it was around September the 7th or 8th, September 8th, I think it was my major league debut. I caught Sonny Subert. And I re- remember looking at the attendance. It was under 5,000. And I'm thinking, this is the big leagues. You know, I just played in front of 20-plus thousand people at a AAA playoff game. And I come to the big leagues, and you know, we had less than 5,000 people in the game. But Sonny Siebert pitched, uh, pitched a complete game. He gave me the baseball uh, because it was my major league debut, and I thought that was special that even though he won the game, had the complete game, he gave me the baseball, and I was fortunate. I didn't play that much. I think I got 16 at-bats. I got one swinging bunt base hit down the left or the third baseline, and that was the extent of my offense. Uh, coming up in 67 but to get my feet wet um it was it was an experience again i'll never forget to be able to uh to to join the cleveland indians play and and learn about major league baseball at that time and especially with the veteran team that the indians had um you know i learned so much from those players and uh stan williams who was a pitcher for portland had been called up before and whenever i joined the cleveland indians stan williams uh, we were standing in a hotel and he called me and he's, you know, he kind of took me under his wing, both in Portland as well as with the Cleveland Indians. So he kind of did what Rocky Calavito did for me in 65. Stan Williams did it in September of 1967 to help me get introduced to the major leagues. And um, I'll be honest with you, when it was over, I was happy it was over because it, it was just a whirlwind year to go to college, uh, go to Portland, Oregon, to go to Cleveland, and play with the Indians, and it was exhausting, even though um, 
probably in looking back, I didn't play as many games as I did in the future in the big leagues, but it was just one of those years because so many things happened that I was kind of fortunate and happy that the season was over, that I could get back to resume my, my normal activities because uh, just, just so much happened. As Ray mentioned, he didn't really play too many games in 67 and he actually really didn't become a regular until that 1970 season. But in 67, he ended up catching his first uh, base dealer on September 9th. And he has his first hit, as, as he mentioned, uh, if you look at baseball reference, it'll say a single to third base. But the way uh, the plain dealer described it, it said, tried rookie catcher Ray Fossey also halted a hapless streak. He beat out an infield roller in the fifth frame for his first major league hit in 12 at-bats. So again, baseball reference and the box scores don't list it, list it as a, uh, an infield roller, just as a single. And Ray really cut his teeth in the minors. In 1966, he played 116 games with Reno. In 67, he played 75 games with Portland. And in 68, he played 103 games with Portland. So all that really helped him develop into uh, uh, the star catcher that he was to become. And by that 1970 season, he kind of had things a little more figured out. I think that helped me, the one thing that helped me in 1970 was the fact that I signed as an 18-year-old, and, and as I remember now and, and remember back to then, I, I remember someone said that if you sign out of high school, the period of time that you have to develop into a major league player is between four and six years. As a college player, because you had the experience of playing in college baseball, it was less more two to four years. So the fact that I played in Reading, Pennsylvania, Double A, which was I was so over my head as an 18-year-old going to a team that my goodness, these guys have played major league baseball and, and they were throwing pitches I'd never seen before, but then to get a full season in, in class A in Reno, um, it was class A, it was Reno, Nevada. And I remember there was a catcher who was promoted to triple A. And I'll be honest, I was upset because he was promoted for reasons other than baseball. It was a, a city of the biggest little city in the world. And I'll leave that up to the uh, listeners to figure out what I'm talking about, but I was upset, but I was told by the manager, Phil Cavaretti, he said, listen, the organization wants to see you play in one full season at one area, one, one team. And it was the Reno Silver Sox. So in hindsight, for me to get that experience of catching and playing, playing every day and getting experience, I mean, realizing I was only 19 years old. And so in my mind, I wanted to advance as quickly as possible. So it was, I was upset that I didn't go to triple A. But in looking back at that season, that was probably the most uh, the most influential and best season for me. I met my current wife. We've been married 50 years plus. Um, she was going to school at University of Nevada, Reno, and I was playing for the Reno Silver Sox. And we met during the summer and dated. She went on to finish her school and teach. I went on to play minor league baseball, and we got married in that 1970 season. But then to go to school in the off season and, and really a full year in 1966, 67, and then 68 to go back to Portland after I had gotten the experience in uh, 67 in September, but I needed that experience of a full season at AAA, which I got in 1968. And then I went to Cleveland in 68 in September, 69 uh, in the fall and winter of 68, I went to my, um, uh, basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. I spent 16 weeks there and then ended up going to spring training. I made the team in 69, but unfortunately uh, broke my right index finger uh, and missed a lot of time 
and came back in September. But 1970, uh, I, I, the thing that probably helped me the most or a lot was going to winter baseball in Venezuela in the, uh, the winter of 1969 because when I played winter ball, we ended up winning the uh, Magian, or the uh, Venezuelan championship. I played for Magianes, but I had a very little period of time between the end of winter baseball until spring training. So by the time I got to spring training, I mean, I was, uh, I was not that far removed from playing uh, organized baseball in Venezuela. So that helped me to stay in shape, to keep in shape for baseball as, as a catcher and as a hitter. And then things took off in 1970, but it was those years leading up to it because I was very young. I needed the experience, experience of minor league baseball. And while I, along with every player, whoever puts on a professional uniform wants to advance as quickly as possible. I knew that the important thing for me was to take that time that I got at the minor league level before I was able to get to the big leagues and do what I did in 1970. As I mentioned before, Ray played in majors sparingly from 1967 to 1969. He played in less than 50 games. Now, in 1970, he would go on to get married before the season, play in 120 games where he won a gold glove and became an all-star for the first time in his career. He started the season platooning as catcher, but he uh, went on to mention that on April 25th in a game against the White Sox, it was the, the starting point of his regular playing time. It was really noticed how well he was hitting and maybe they should give him every day behind the plate. So, you know, during this time, he got that boost he needed to have an all-star first half. And during that uh, first half of the season, he had a 23-game hitting streak. And during this streak, I think it was around the 15th game, the tribe was playing in New York when a fan from the stands threw a cherry bomb that exploded under his foot. Uh, and he ended up finishing the game, but the paper had mentioned the cherry bomb that landed under Fossey's foot burned through his spikes and might have caused permanent damage if the firecracker had exploded a fraction of a second sooner when it was falling in front of Ray's face. So, again, talk about a tough guy with uh, you know playing through pain. I mean, he took a, a firecracker to his foot. I can't imagine what that would feel like. Unfortunately, it didn't, you know, stop him from, from having that breakout season he was having. Well, the 1970 season was special. And, and the, the fact that I, I was platooning with Duke Sims, uh, Duke left-handed hitter, and I was a right-handed hitter. And we were playing the White Sox uh, on a weekend at Municipal Stadium. And I faced Tommy John. It had to be on a Saturday day game. And on Sunday, because Joel Horland was pitching, and I, and I know those two pitchers, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was those Saturdays and Sunday, the Saturday and Sunday. But I was out taking batting practice with the extra guys, and that's when Hoot Evers saw me taking batting practice. He went to Alvin Dark, and he said, you know, Alvin, uh, and he told me later, he said, I told Alvin that, you know, I know you're platooning with Duke and Ray, but, you know, Ray's swinging the bat well. Why don't you just play him every day? And righties, lefties, it doesn't matter. And so, as it turned out, that first half of 1970, I was playing every day. Duke was playing in the outfield. Uh, I was catching double headers. I had a 23-game hitting streak. Um, <laughs> had a, a cherry bomber, Il Mady, thrown at my my foot at Yankee Stadium. Second game of a double header that exploded, dropped me about four feet in the air. I stayed in the game, kept my hitting streak going, and it ended against Ray Culp in Boston um, when it was the first game of a doubleheader 
and he threw me one fastball, and I, I pulled it foul, but everything else was a breaking ball, and I ended up going 0 for 4. And I played the second game and hit a three-run home run off Ken Brett of uh, the Red Sox at that time. But but it was just a magical first half of the season, and uh, to be able to, to play the double now, not only did Ray have his baseball responsibilities as a 23-year-old catcher for the tribe, uh, he also had a commitment to serving in, the, in an Army Reserve unit. Unfortunately, he was able to juggle both these two careers, and it did create for some fond memories. He goes on to mention how he would show up to games a little bit late and having to run to, uh, to go warm up and getting a nice ovation from tribe fans, even with his uh, high and tight haircut. And I'll be honest with you, I was in a reserve unit, um, and Merv Redmond's brother-in-law was the commanding officer. And I transferred from New Haven, Connecticut, where I got in a reserve unit, to Cleveland. And I remember he said to me, do your time. It was a critical time. He said, I want you to spend the time that's necessary. Uh, and I, could, I went out during the week and did the time. Uh, but that also during the weekends that we had meetings, I would get up at six in the morning and go to the reserve meeting and I would be let out at noon. And one of the, the things that I always remember about the great Cleveland Indians fans was getting there. And because I got to the park so late, I couldn't start the game, but running from the, the home dugout, which was on the first base side down to the bullpen, fans would yell and give me a standing ovation as I was running down there. And I mean, it, it was a thrill. And that was the time too, that, um, you know, the haircut being in the military, it had to be very close. And so um, I would get haircuts and I had no hair. I mean, it's maybe a quarter or half inch long at, at most is like a buzz cut, but it, it was a time that uh, I, I recognized that what my position was with the Indians and, you know, what the fans thought of me. From the time he started his hit streak until the All-Star break, Ray was hitting a cool 348 with nine home runs, five doubles, and 28 RBI in 36 games, and it all culminated in a selection to the 1970 All-Star game. Ray was picked by Orioles manager Earl Weaver to be the second catcher on the American League squad. The Cleveland Plain Dealer reported on July 1st that Fossey is likely All-Star pick. Ray Fossey will be on the American League All-Star team. That was confirmed by the catcher himself last night before the Indians played the Baltimore Orioles. Orioles manager Earl Weaver played a part in the announcement, too. Weaver was shown the open letter to him that appeared in yesterday's editions of The Plain Dealer, urging the selection of Fossey on the AL Dream Team that will play the National League a week from next Tuesday in Cincinnati. He said, You don't have to sell me on Fossey. I know all about him, and I knew he would be an all-star catcher when I first saw him, back in 1965, when he broke in with Redding of the Eastern League, said Weaver, who was then managing Elmira. And if you don't believe me, go in and talk to Vice President Harry Dalton tomorrow and ask to see the reports I wrote on Fossey. The only thing that surprises me is it took Ray that long to prove he's as good as I knew he would be, added Weaver. Does that mean it's official that Weaver already chose Fossey as a second catcher? He said, quote, You know, I have to wait until the league president releases the names of the players, said Weaver. The only thing I can tell you is now is that I'll pick Ray unless he goes into an 0-35 for slump in the next week to which Fossey retorted with a big grin, then it's official because there's no way I'm going into a slump like that. To get, um, actually, Alvin Dark was the manager, and um, he told Sam McDowell and me that we had been selected uh, by the American League because Bill Freehand started the game, and 
it was in Cincinnati, and I caught a doubleheader in Cleveland against the Red Sox on the Sunday, which would have been the 12th of July. And then Sam McDowell and I went to Cincinnati with our wives, he with his wife, Carol, and my wife, Carol. And uh, we ended up going to Cincinnati the night after the game of uh, July the 12th and played the All-Star game. So, you know, for having that all culminate, that first half into an All-Star season. Uh, if you know, or if you're listening to this and you're uh, familiar with Ray Fossey's career, then you're aware of what happened at the 1970 All-Star game and how it's been, you know, talked about uh, you know, every year, it seems. And Ray uh, was convinced by his daughters to actually kind of put his his words up online at rayfossey.com and I'll try to tweet that link out so you can click it if you'd like about the events of that day because you know I imagine when you tell the same story over and over it's probably uh difficult and you kind of get bored of it uh so um but you know in our in our conversation it it did come up and uh here's uh some of what Ray had to say you know we we developed the rayfossey.com website and the article, I wrote it, and my wife proofed it. As a teacher, she proofed it. And the article, basically, the way it was, and it shows the collision. And I detail from day one of the 70 season, culminating in Cincinnati and what, is, what happened. The, the night before, hey, they say, hey, you guys were out to dinner. Yeah, Sam McDowell, Pete Rose, and I were out to dinner with our wives, Carol, Carolyn Rose, Carol Fossey, and Carol McDowell. And we had dinner, and we went to Pete's house. I was back in the hotel at 1 o'clock. The next day, the game was at night, so it's not like it was four in the morning that, that Pete said that Ray and I were out to four o'clock having a good time, which we weren't. So, you know, there are a lot of things that had happened over the period of time to the point that our daughters did suggest, write a website, tell it like it was. And uh, I did that, and that's the way it was. And, and because I can remember everything that happened from – Sam and I getting on the plane with our wives in Cleveland, flying to Cincinnati. And I'll be honest with you, when we played, uh, the A's played Cincinnati a few years ago, I actually went to the hotel where we stayed. I didn't remember that much about it. But once I got in, I remember the lobby. I remember, I mean, at the time in 70, there were no big parties the night before and the Sunday night and, you know, the home run derbies and all those things. It was basically, you have American League, the National League, select the pitchers, and I remember the American League president coming in and said, guys, we want to win this game. And that's why Earl Weaver, I mean, in today's world where everybody wants to play and needs to play and managers say, I have to play everybody. Earl Weaver, I call you Strzemski, played 12 innings at first base. Uh, Brooks Robinson played at third. Lou Saparicio, uh, Jim Palmer started that game, I think it was, and uh, Tom Seaver uh, for the National League. And, and I, I think of the 60 players there probably 1920 future Hall of Famers were on that field that I had an opportunity to be a part of. And to me, that if my career had ended then, and many people thought after the collision my career ended, but had it ended then, my life in baseball would have been fine because I had a chance to play and succeed in 1970 in the first half and and then play in an all-star game. I'm glad my career didn't end, but had it ended at that time, it would have been something that I would have been able to remember for my life, but uh, I was fortunate to play another nine years after that. Earl Weaver, I remember him telling me, he said, Bill Freehan is going to catch as much as he's required to catch, and then you're going to be in the game. I came in, and uh, Jerry Moses was the third catcher. And after the collision, I remember Jerry had said, gee, I wish he'd held on to the ball or 
you know, we'd have played extra because I knew he's so hurt he couldn't play. So I'd have been able to get in the game, yeah, but that didn't occur. But um, it, it was a thrill to play in the All-Star game in Cincinnati. And again, I have, I have the highlight tape, probably the low lights at the end. Uh, again, a collision of a play that will be played forever. But uh, as time has gone over the years, people would call and they say, well, the game's in um, wherever it might be. And the writers would call and I'd say, listen, I have said everything that I can say. If you want to go in the archives and look at the articles, I can't say any more than that. And it's kind of dwindled to the point that um, as the All-Star game approaches and the July 14th date, uh, this date in baseball history, uh, I'm sure when that date does appear, and in attendance for the game was Ray's mother and his wife, who actually were both meeting for the first time. Uh, Ray mentioned that his, his wife, Carol, had given up her player's wife's ticket in order to sit with Ray's mom in the upper deck. Now, the American League took a 4-1 lead going to the ninth, and with Ray actually contributing with a sack fly in the seventh, but the National League put up three in the bottom of the ninth to tie the game. And in the twelfth, with Ray still catching, the first two batters, Joe Torre and Roberto Clemente, started the inning with ground outs before Pete Rose singled to center. The next batter also singled, putting two runners on for Jim Hickman, who then singled to center. And with Rose barreling around third and Amos Otis's throw on its way, the collision that's still remembered to this day was uh, the results of which would linger throughout uh, Ray's baseball career. Now, after he was hit, the X-rays really didn't detect anything, and uh, but Ray had actually separated his, his shoulder, and you know, he'd continue to play through the pain for the rest of the season, but he'd have to alter his swing, and that really kind of messed things up for him, and, and he just couldn't recapture that first-half magic of 1970. But the, the thing that uh, over the – well, the early part after the 70 season, as it came around, and first and foremost, I, I must say that I appreciate what my teammates in the American League said and some very, very notable players, Hall of Famers, who said, you know, it wasn't necessary for that collision to occur and the whole thing. But, uh, but you know, in hindsight, um, I remember the late Wally Bach was our trainer, and I got my left shoulder x-rayed in Cincinnati. And uh, I give a lot of credit to my wife, Carol, because my mother, uh, who raised three boys, and she had never met my wife. And I told my mother in the spring of 1970 that I was getting married. It was, you know, Alvin Dark had said, you know, uh, it was, I wanted to get married on April the 4th, which happened to be my birthday. And we got married in Reno, and I ended up starting the season in Cleveland on April the 7th, catching. So our honeymoon was actually in Cleveland. And But in the at the All-Star game, when it occurred, the city of Marion, Illinois, sent my mother, with a dozen roses, put her on a plane, flew her to Cincinnati. And my wife, again, I give my wife Carol a lot of credit because she had a ticket with all the wives of the players. She gave up her ticket, got another ticket so she could sit with my mother. They were sitting in the upper deck down the left field line at uh, Riverfront Stadium. They were so high up. And I remember my wife had taken a picture and we looked like little dots on the field. And when the collision occurred at the end of the game, and the winning run scored. My wife and mother did not know the result of what had happened until they heard it on the radio. Someone had a transistor radio, and they, they heard the play-by-play and the collision home plate. I ended up going into the, um, into the, the, the trainer's room, um, 
I went to the hospital. My mother and my wife went with me to the hospital. They x-rayed it, couldn't show anything or didn't show anything. And so I go back into uh, Cleveland on the off day of Wednesday and went to Wally Bach and the, the trainer's room at, at Municipal Stadium and, you know, couldn't detect anything wrong. But when we started the season, second half in Kansas City on the Thursday, uh, I went out to tell, well, I first of all looked at the lineup and Almondark had me hitting fourth and catching. And I didn't say anything. I knew my left shoulder. I couldn't lift it above my head. And it was just an unbelievable pain. So I went out to take batting practice. And basically, I couldn't swing the bat. Uh, my left arm, it was, it was useless. Uh, and so what ultimately developed was a change of my batting, my swing, to using my top hand. And I never, ever got the swing back that I had developed in the first half of 1970 because my left arm, uh, especially my shoulder, I could not use it effectively enough to be able to have the swing and which generated 16 home runs prior to the all-star break. Um, and, you know, I guess looking at back at it and saying, you know, could I have hit 30, 35 for my career, you know, and could I've hit 350, 400 home runs? I don't know because I couldn't use my left shoulder, but I ended up playing the game. I played uh, the rest of July and August and, Basically, my season ended on September the 1st when I broke my right apex finger for the third consecutive year. And Dr. Malcolm Brahms uh, operated on it, put a pen in it. And uh, for three years in a row, 68, 9, and 70, I'd broken my right index finger. And he told me that if I did it again the third year, which I did, I was going to need surgery to kind of set the uh, – set the finger and put pins in it and the whole thing. But, you know, it was, it was just a, a first – look at it this way. I, it was the first half of the season, and, and that's the way I looked at it. When you think about the injury and how much pain Ray was playing in, and then you look at his second-half stats, it's still pretty amazing. I mean, his, his left uh, shoulder was, was all kinds of messed up, but even with an altered swing, he still managed to hit 297. Now, his power numbers weren't the same as they were in that first half of the season. He was only able to hit – two more home runs the rest of that year, but it's definitely understandable after a you know, violent collision like that and not necessarily knowing the extent of your injuries. And we're going to end this podcast there, not because obviously Ray's career was over there. It wasn't over by a long shot, but because there's quite a bit more material uh, from our conversation. So I'm going to split this up into two podcasts and uh, this seems like a, a logical stopping point. So Hopefully you enjoyed this first episode of uh, my interview with with Ray Fossey and uh, leaves you hopefully wanting to listen to the second half, which will most likely come out next week. And again, thank you for listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns or suggestions, please uh, feel free to tweet at me. I'm at jfedor or um, you know, message the Indians' uh, Twitter accounts or social media or contact our fan services, and they'll get me the messages. So I'm always happy to uh, talk to, to fans and you know see what else uh, – of interest maybe we can you know dive into some other podcast topics uh if if someone brings something up that i hadn't thought about so um and so once again thanks for listening you've been listening to our tribe history presented by progressive with your host indians team historian jeremy fedor